The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word this morning as a people that are needy, needy for direction, needy for leadership, needy for hope. We come to your word this morning as a joyful people, rejoicing in your great love for us that you have shown to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this morning as we dive into your word, your holy, inspired, and errant word, that we would allow it to confront our hearts and to change us into the image of Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Leadership is a difficult endeavor. Leadership is a holy endeavor. Leadership is a dangerous endeavor. A couple summers ago, I received an email from Green Bay Park and Rec. They notified me that there was a men's softball team that was looking for a few extra players, and they listed out the coach's email address. And so I contacted the coach because I like softball and I like meeting new people. And I said, I'm interested in playing. I remember that first phone call. I was in Taco Bell and the coach called me up and he said, we are serious about softball. Are you good at softball? I'm okay. You know, I, what do you say to that? I don't know. And he went on to talk about how much they were focused on winning. He shared about how at every game that we won, whoever the MVP was, he personally was going to give $100 to. So I'm like, I'll play, you know. <laughs> I don't know if I'm good, but there's a chance. 
And that if we won the whole league, if we won the whole thing, he was going to rent a party bus for us and our significant others to drive down to a Brewers game and back. Well, I got notice a few weeks later that we had our first practice. It was at a batting cage. Out of his own money, he had rented out batting cages on multiple occasions for us to go and have batting practice for rec league softball. And then we started to get outside, and we were practicing in the field, and his leadership skills were astonishing. If we missed a ground ball or if we did something wrong, we'd have to immediately do push-ups for rec league softball. And then, now this, you might think I'm lying, but I promise you I'm not. He told us to start cussing at one another to motivate us to play better in rec league softball. Needless to say, the leadership skills did not work. Our team won one game all year, and by the end of the season, everybody had dropped off the team except for me and one other person who went to church here as well. By the last game, again, this is not a joke, he was recruiting on Craigslist, he did not get enough players, and so he drove around town and picked guys up that were standing on street corners to come and play softball with us. Leadership is dangerous. Leadership is also a holy endeavor. Leadership is not easy. Bad leadership can have bad results. Jim Rohn, who was an American entrepreneur with a rags-to-riches story, sums up the difficulty of leadership in this way, and I greatly appreciated it. He said, the challenge of leadership is to be strong, but not rude. Be kind, but not weak. Be bold, but not a bully. Be humble, but not timid. Be proud, but not arrogant. Have humor, but without folly. Leadership is a difficult task, but it is also a holy task. Some of you here probably do not consider yourselves to be leaders. Some of you probably flee from leadership. Some of you probably sit in the cheap seats and hurl insults at leaders, never dreaming, never wanting to take leadership for anything in your life. But the reality is this, that God has created each and every one of us to be leaders. In Genesis 1:28, God's first command to humanity. We read that God blessed them and God said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth." And then he says this, and subdue it. That is take control over it. Be leaders over it. And then he says, "And have dominion." That is reign over creation. Men and women were created to be leaders. Chances are, whether you know it or not, you are probably in many leadership positions in your own life. Maybe you're not a CEO of a company, but maybe you're a coach of a rec league softball team. Maybe you're a team leader at your place of business. Maybe you lead a small group in the church. Maybe you are a leader of your home as a father or mother or simply an older sibling. 
Maybe you are a leader in putting together a dance or an event. Maybe you are a leader among your peers in a very untitled way. All of these are leadership positions, and all of us were created for leadership. Leadership is a divine calling from God, not just to reign, but to righteously reign under the lordship of God. It is a calling to bring redemption into a broken world, into a broken workplace, into a broken family. It is a calling to extend the kingdom of God in every sphere of life that God places us in. Leadership is a divine calling to redemption. Today, we are going to continue reading about two leaders in the nation of Israel, one being King Saul, the man with the title, the man with the position, and the other, his son, Jonathan. And as we look through these parallel leadership roles, we are going to see a contrast between ungodly leadership and godly leadership. And this will give us an opportunity to evaluate our own leadership, to acknowledge the areas where God has blessed us and we are doing well, but also to see places of weakness where we can grow more into the image of God in our leadership. And so if you would please open up to 1 Samuel chapter 14, it is page 24. I'm sorry, it's page 236 in the Red Bible, and it's page 237 in the Children's Bible. As we dive into this passage, I would just like to ask you the question, where is leadership most difficult for you? I know many times we like to think of the areas where we are strongest at leadership, but where is leadership most difficult for you? You know, you may be here and you may say, you know, people at work, they love me, they adore me, they follow me, but then I get home and like my family doesn't like me. Why is it that I'm appreciated everywhere else except in my home? I've heard that many times. Or maybe it's flipped for you. Maybe you say, you know what, in my house, people love me, they appreciate me, but when I go to work, nobody likes me. And so where is leadership the biggest struggle for you? Today, we're going to look and see how to Image Christ in our leadership and lead in godly ways. Today, as we look at this contrast, there are two things we want to look at with subpoints. The first is the foundations of a godly leader, and the second is the fruit of a godly leader. First, the foundations of a godly leader. There are three, there are three foundations that I want to look at from this passage. Uh, this is not an exhaustive list, but it is helpful in teaching us how we are to live as Christ bearers in leadership positions. The first foundation for godly leadership is pulling, not pushing. I'll have to explain that. And looking at this passage today, we're going to be looking at verses 24 through the end. But verse 24 is really the linchpin of the whole verse. And so we really have to understand what verse 24 is saying. And just in case you haven't been around here or maybe you've forgotten like I have, I want to give you a little bit of context to verse 24. If you remember, uh, Israel was in a time of adversity. The Philistine army had come out against Israel. They had at least 3,000 chariots, six 
thousand horsemen, and it says troops like the sand or the seashore. Israel, on the other hand, had 2,000 soldiers. Most of them fled, and they were left with 600 frightened men and only two weapons. As we turn to chapter 14, we read that King Saul is hiding in the pomegranate cave in Migron with his 600 scared soldiers. Meanwhile, Jonathan responds with audacious faith, as he and his armor bearer, though greatly outnumbered, attack a garrison of Philistines and defeats them. In the midst of their great victory, there's confusion that strikes the Philistine camp. The Philistines actually start fighting against one another. And while the Philistines are fighting against one another, Saul sends out one of his men to go and see what is going on with the Philistines. And the watchman comes back to Saul and he says, there is a great panic in the Philistine camp. And so Saul sees the opportunity and he says, let's go and strike now. And so it's in the midst of this, as Saul is gathering his troops, getting ready to go and attack the Philistines, that verse 24 happens. So let's, let's read verse 24. And remember the picture. Saul's gathering his forces, getting ready to go into battle. Verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. If you have a Bible, you probably see a heading above verse 24 that might say something like Saul's rash vow. It was indeed a rash vow, but it was more than that. It was a self-centered vow focused on his blind vengeance. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, we learned that righteous anger has a focus on God's kingdom and not on our kingdom. Here you can see whose kingdom Saul is focused upon. He said, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged of my enemies. Not God's enemies, but my enemies. And I'm not sure if Saul is trying to reclaim respect from his soldiers or if he's trying to repay the Philistines for something they did earlier. But for whatever reason, Saul makes this rash, self-centered, vengeful vow. But it is even more than that. It's also a foolish vow. It's contrary to common sense. Look at verse 25 through 28 with me. It says, Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, charged the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand into his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. What we'll see here in a little bit is that the soldiers of Israel were in the midst of a 15 mile hike. I don't know if you've ever been hiking, but hiking 15 miles up and down rigorous uh, terrain is an exhausting 
process. And many times you have to stop to get refreshed with, with trail mix or with granola bars or whatever it might be. Here, Israel is hiking this five, 15 miles interspersed with hand-to-hand combat, and they have nothing to eat. And so it simply says, the people were faint. Napoleon once said, an army marches on its stomach. Saul was forcing his soldiers both to fast and to fight. He was denying his soldiers fuel for the battle, and it was absolutely foolish. Jonathan experiences this, and his words draw attention to how foolish this is in their 15-mile pursuit of the Philistines. They go through this forest with honey flowing dripping from the trees, coming up from the ground. It is a great provision of God to strengthen his military. Jonathan, unaware of his father's vow, eats some of the honey, and we read that his eyes became bright. That simply just means he was, his, his, his body was nourished physically. He was rejuvenated to go and fight the battle. And so Jonathan learns about the vow, and he responds by pointing out how foolish the vow is. Look in verse 29. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, 15 miles, and the people were very faint. Saul's Rash vow was a selfish vow focused on personal vengeance. It was a foolish vow, robbing his soldiers of the nutrients that they need. And so the question is, why did Saul make this vow? Well, Saul made this vow because for whatever reason, he felt that he needed to push his people to obey. He needed to push them to obey to the full extent. Saul was pushing them into battle through manipulation instead of pulling them into battle through leadership. If you remember earlier in this chapter, which we talked about two weeks ago, Jonathan goes into a battle, just him and his armor bearer, and he stirs up this huge commotion among the Philistines. And what happens as a result of it is it emboldens God's people. And the soldiers engage in the battle. And Hebrews that had defected to the Philistines defect back to Israel. And people come out of the caves and they start fighting this battle. And so what Jonathan is doing, Jonathan is leading the charge in the battle. He is incarnating himself into battle. And he is pulling the people into battle behind him and not pushing them into battle in front of him. We are called to lead the charge, to pull people into the battle that we ourselves are already in, not to push them through manipulation. Let me just give a quick example. Let's say, dads, your children are sassing back at their mother, and you see this going on, and you get in their face, and you tell them, you need to respect your mother. You need to treat her well. You need to cherish her. That's all well and good, but that's not yet godly leadership. You see, leadership doesn't just threaten them to respect their mother. Leadership displays respect for their mother. Leadership displays respect for your mother. And so you are leading them into this battle to respect and to love their mother by doing it yourself. Or maybe moms, you 
have done this before, I know I have, where you will say to your kids, stop yelling! Settle down! Calm down! The old do as I say, not as I do, that's pushing people instead of pulling them into the battle. Jonathan stepped into the battle and then without even asking, pulled the men to join him into battle. Godly leadership does not push people into action, but pulls people into action. Godly leadership leads the charge in the battle. The second foundation of a godly leader is following before leading. Look at verse 32 with me. It says, The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. So as a result of Saul's foolish, selfish, vengeful vow, the people were absolutely starving. Again, they had hiked 15 miles and hand-to-hand combat, and they were very faint. And so when they get there, when they finish off the vow, they take the animals and they slaughter them on the ground and they start to eat them immediately. Now, the problem with this is in the Old Testament, on numerous occasions, which they would have been familiar with, it was not uh, permitted to eat meat without first draining the blood. In fact, when Noah came off the ark, that is what God commanded Noah. He said, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. You see, the reason that God prohibited people from eating blood as part of the animal in the Old Testament is because it symbolized both the, sac- the sacredness of life, but also the atonement for sin. You see, blood was to be used in those days as an offering to make atonement for sin. And yet here they're using it recklessly because they are starving. And so it was not to be eaten in that way, but reserved for atonement, for compensation, for payment, for sin. Verse 33, let's continue. Then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. In this process, Saul seems to have a moment of clarity in which he rolls a large stone and calls the people to come and sacrifice animals on this stone so that their blood can drain out. And then he builds an altar, maybe to make atonement for their sin. You know, commentators disagree on whether or not Saul's actions are noble or godly or not. For example, some say Saul was told it was sinful because he wasn't there. Others would say Saul was there, but he didn't know it was sinful. And so someone told him, hey, this is a sinful practice. Yeah, others would say, you know, when Saul built an altar, that was a good thing. But why was it his first? He should have built one earlier. Uh, Yeah, other commentators would say the king shouldn't be building altars. So I'm not sure if what Saul was doing here was right or wrong. But one thing that I do see here that is clear is that Saul is reactive and not proactive in his faith. He was reacting to the Lord instead of following the Lord. 
I don't know if you've ever heard of this statement. It's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. But this was Saul's attitude towards God. Saul was a ready, shoot, aim type of guy. This is further exemplified by the next few verses. Look at verse 36 with me. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. The soldiers wanted more plunder. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. Do you see this? This is a pattern that we've seen in Saul. I don't have time to recount it all, but Saul is following his own passions. And it is the priest who says, whoa, 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 let's, let's slow down. Let's draw near to God. Let's seek out the Lord's will for this situation. Again, we've seen this in previous chapters as he hurries the sacrifice, as he tells the, the priest to take his hand out of the ephod, which is supposed to tell him to go into battle or not, and he just goes into it. Saul does not want to know the will of God. Saul wants to do whatever he wants to do and then come back and make repentance for that. In that instance, earlier in the chapter, and in this instance, Saul doesn't want to know God's will because Saul doesn't want to follow God's will. Saul wants to follow Saul's will. See, the primary attribute, the primary attribute of a godly leader is that they are first a follower. They are a follower of God. They don't just run blindly into battle and later consult God. They are a Jesus follower first and a godly leader second. They seek out the will of the Lord and the strength of the Lord for their leadership. They pray things like, Lord, let thy kingdom come. Let thy will be done. I have a friend in town here who does not attend our church. I knew him a few years ago um, when he really was not that famous, but he has started a company and it has grown and it has blossomed. And when he was starting up that business, he came to me and he said, you know, the advice of other business leaders is that I get a life coach for the different spheres of my personal and professional career. And he said, would you be my spiritual life coach? See, what makes my friend such a good leader is that he is first a follower. He is first a student. You know, we have available to us the greatest life coach in the entire universe. We have available to us a life coach that will never lead us astray or lead us down the wrong path. See, your primary job as a leader is to be a follower of God. As this priest says here in this passage, we are called to draw near to God. And we do this through what we call the means of grace. We draw near to God through prayer, through reading his word, through fellowship, through rather regular gathering together of worship and partaking of the sacraments. This is how we feast on God and gain his insight and direction. You know, I just want to overemphasize this point just a little bit because I think it is the most important. Whether you are a leader at church or at work or in the home or in the community, or even on a rec league softball team. The most important foundation of your leadership is your followership. 
It's your followership of Jesus Christ. Now, just to speak personally, this was extremely convicting for me this week. To be honest, I often feel too busy leading the church and leading my family and leading a soccer team and leading this and leading that, that I don't feel like I have enough time to connect with God, to pray to God, to get into God's word for myself. But this was a great reminder that that is my primary duty as a leader. And I cannot do the rest of those things in the way that God is calling me to do until I first commit myself every day, drawing near to God as a follower of Jesus. So godly leadership pulls people into battle, leads people into battle. Godly leadership follows God before it leads people. The third foundation for leadership is repenting instead of blaming. Verse 37, Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he, God, did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though, or even if it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Saul's self-centered stubbornness culminates here. Prior, he said, if anyone breaks this vow, they shall be cursed. Now he amps it up and says, they will surely die. As, as I looked at this passage and I looked at this question, this verse, the question that came to my mind is, who sinned in this passage? Was it Saul who refused to seek the Lord on several occasions? Who, who, who failed to follow the Lord's guidance, who, who sacrificed illegally and should have been put to death? Is it the troops who cowered in fear and would not take on the mission of God and who sacrificed animals and ate them with blood and it's strictly forbidden by God, also punishable by death? Or was it Jonathan, the guy who had a little bit of honey? Well, as we will see here, Saul uses God's prescribed means to discern his will, which are these two stones that are inside the ephod, pulls them out to, to distinguish, to figure out who is the sinner in the bunch, the sinner that is bringing upon God's silence. And so he starts by seeing if the sin is in, in the people or in the royal family. Verse 40, then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore, Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. That's one of the stones. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. That's the other stone. And Jonathan and Saul were taken but the people escaped. Second round. Then Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. 
Really? Jonathan? <laughs> he just took a little bit of honey? Were these other people defied the living God? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem right. Did Jonathan sin against God? He did. He did. You see, King Saul was the God-given authority of Israel. And although his vow was foolish, although it was vengeful, although it was selfish, it was not sinful for the people to obey it. And although Jonathan was not there to hear it, ignorance is no excuse. And he did not obey the word of the king who God had placed in authority. Now, if this makes you angry, I understand. If I were Jonathan, do you know what I would say? I would say, Dad, that was an idiotic vow. And no one even told me about it. How was I possibly supposed to obey? But Jonathan gives what I think is one of the most startling responses in all of Scripture. Look in verse 43. Samuel said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. And then Jonathan says these startling words. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. This is so mind-blowing to me. Because from my vantage point, with all the stuff I shared earlier, Jonathan is the least sinful of all the sinners. They are all much more sinful than Jonathan is. Just Jonathan's sin, but, but they were all much more sinful than he was. And we don't see Saul repenting for his, his foolish vows or, or his foolish things that he has done. We don't see the people repenting for the animals that they ate with blood in it. We don't see any of them repenting of any of these things. And yet Jonathan, who just had a little bit of honey, stands there and says, it was me. I have sinned. Here I am. I will take the punishment for my sin. I will die. None of the others repented. Yet Jonathan a man after God's own heart sees his son and he confesses it before the people and he takes on the consequences of that sin, which is death. He doesn't provide any exception. He doesn't say, yes, I ate honey, but you made a foolish vow. He doesn't say, yes, I have sinned, but you guys all need to repent of your sin first and then I'll repent of mine. Jonathan doesn't do any of that. Jonathan accepts full responsibility for his sin and for the punishment of his sin. In your sphere of leadership, whether it be in the workplace, in the home, in the community, are you waiting for others to repent before you do? 
Do you look at other people sinning? You say, well, I'm not as bad as them, so I don't really need to repent. Repentance for a Christ follower should be frequent. It should be daily. It should be a way of life. You know, the world will tell leaders that they should never show any weakness or admit any other mistakes, but whatever God is calling us to is contrary to that. God is calling us as leaders to be the lead repenters because you do not need to be a perfect leader to be a godly leader. A matter of fact, just the opposite. You need to confess that you are not a perfect leader to be a godly leader. We are called to repent without qualifications, without excuses, without ifs, ands, or buts. We are to say, I have sinned against you. I am sorry. Please forgive me. And so my question for you again is, who has God put on your heart that you need to go and repent to? Who do you need to go and ask for forgiveness? You see, following Jesus might be the most important part of leadership, but in my opinion, repentance is the hardest part of leadership. And this is what God has called us to do. To be a leader, we're called to be lead repenters. And so these are the foundations of a godly leader. They pull people into action through leadership. They are first followers of Jesus before they are leaders. And godly leaders do not blame others as Saul had in the past, but accept responsibility and repent. Now I just quickly want to look through the fruit of a godly leader. As we discuss this fruit of godly leadership, I I think I'm a little uncomfortable saying these are promises. They are more like principles, but they're helpful for us in seeing what the fruit is of godly leadership. First, we see is community support. Look in verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed or rescued Jonathan so that he did not die. The people counter Saul's oath in verse 39 with their own oath. Saul made a vow saying, as the Lord lives, the sinner shall die. And the people rose up and says, as the Lord lives, Jonathan should live. For the people to defy the king took great courage. They had nothing to gain and everything to lose. He'd already shown that he's willing to kill off anybody who opposes him. And yet they come And they support Jonathan. This is a very public display of a shift in allegiance. Saul is alienating himself from everyone else through his ungodly leadership. His countrymen are turning against him. He's now turned his son against him. And yet Jonathan, without soliciting it, is gathering overwhelming support. Support from people who had nothing to gain and everything to lose for supporting him. And the reason is because of Jonathan's godly leadership. You know, how could this be true in our own spheres of leadership? That people follow us not because they have to, but because they want to. John Maxwell is a Christian writer about leadership, and he writes this book called The Five Levels of Leadership. And I think I have a chart for you up here that kind of goes through it. And starting at the bottom, he says the first level of leadership is position. 
People follow because you have a title, right? They follow because they have to. This is where Saul was at. They followed Saul because he was king. The second is permission. People follow because they want to. Jonathan's armor bearer said, Jonathan, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Jonathan was not binding people to follow him. They wanted to follow him. The third is production. People follow because of what you have done for their organization. Jonathan drove out the Philistines. The fourth is people development. People follow because of what you have done for them. Jonathan inspired them to audacious faith. And the fifth, the pinnacle, respect. People follow because of who you are and what you represent. Jonathan is a godly leader, a man of audacious faith, a repentant leader who follows the Lord. John Maxwell summarizes this chart well by saying, leadership is not about titles, positions, or flowcharts. It's about one life influencing another. And so one fruit of godly leadership is community and community support. The other is community peace. These last 10 or so verses of of chapter 14 are a historical overview of the kingship of Saul. Let's start in verse 46, go through 52. It says, And Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the king of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly instruct the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Verse 49. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger was Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Hamas. And the name of the commander of the army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abel. And then here's what I want to focus on, verse 52. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man on any valiant or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Saul's kingship was marked by violence, by unrest, by constant battling. But God puts us in places of leadership to bring gospel peace. See, both in the time before Saul, when Samuel ruled as a a judge, and after Saul, when David ruled as king, under these godly leaderships, it's noted in Scripture that there was a time of peace in the land. And yet here, under Saul's ungodly leadership, there was unrest and unpeace all the days of his life. You see, peace is the agenda of God. And it should be the agenda of godly leaders. In the Garden of Eden, there was peace between man and God. But that peace was broken through sin and rebellion. And in order to restore peace with us, God sent the greatest leader of all time, his son, Jesus Christ. And his son came for this one purpose, to bring us peace with God and peace with one another. You see, all of us, by our sin, by our rebellion, is, are at war with God. We are enemies of God. And yet Romans 5 tells us this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, declared righteous before God by faith, we have peace 
peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As you go on to the book of Acts, we read, Peter goes to the Gentiles, Gentiles preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And then, of course, Jesus himself said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We are to establish peace with God through Jesus Christ, and then peace in our places of dominion for the glory of God. You know, you may be here, and you may be saying, people at work hate me. They persecute me because I am a Christian. That may be true, but it may also be that they persecute you because you're a jerk. A lot of times we just chalk it up to, I'm a Christian, they persecute me, but maybe you're just a jerk. Maybe you run over them. You know, sinners love Jesus. They love Jesus. They love to be with Jesus. He created peace and harmony in those relationships. We're called to be peacemakers in whatever level of authority God puts us in. Let me end with this. There's an article in the Fundamental Journal, um, and I love the title. This is the title of the article. Dear God, please don't let me be a Christian leader. Cal Thomas found himself called a Christian leader by a leading Christian magazine, and he wondered what that meant. More speaking engagements, perhaps an appearance on a Christian talk show. And then he goes on to say that in a church that he once attended, there was a man of tremendous faith. His wife was an alcoholic. His daughter had psychological problems. He himself often had poor health. Yet week after week, this man never complained. He always came to church with a smile and he asked how I was doing. He faithfully brought to church a young blind man who had no transportation. He always sat with this blind man, helping him sing the hymns by saying the words into his ear. And then he ends the article by saying this. That man was a Christian leader, if there ever was one. Here's the point. You don't need to have a title to be a leader. God has created you to be a leader God has created you to be a leader, a godly leader, to carry his mission forward, to be Jesus to others. Leadership is a holy calling from God himself. Embrace your leadership to righteously reign, to bring forth the kingdom of Christ by repenting of your sins and fostering a community of redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you did not stay at a distance, but that you drew near through your son to lead us into everlasting life. God, pray for our spheres of influence. Wherever you have called us to be leaders, God, may we be peacemakers. May we be people who shine the light of Jesus. May sinners be attracted to us because we too are sinners, desperately in need of a savior. God, pray that we would go out and that we would live as leaders, not for ourselves, not for our kingdom, but to extend your kingdom in our workplace, in our neighborhood, in our families, and even on rec league softball teams. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus Christ, the greatest leader of all times, led even at the sacrifice of his own life. As they were gathering near to his crucifixion, they gathered for the Passover meal. And leading that Passover meal, we read that as Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body.